It's Philosophy Talk. Are you a reader? Me? Oh, big time, yeah. Can you recommend anything uh, that Oprah isn't pushing? Huh. Any new fiction? When it comes to literature, can science tell us anything we don't already know? What could cognitive science teach us about novels, poems, and movies? Have you ever been Captain Nemo? Trapped inside your submarine while the giant squid is attacking you. How do writers and filmmakers pull off those brilliant literary tricks? What happens in your brain when you read? Our guest is Stanford neuroscientist David Eagleman. They're selling coffee, brand muffins, you're surrounded by reading material. It's entrapment. Your Brain on Literature. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. What can neuroscience tell us about novels, poems, and movies? Can fiction help us develop real-world cognitive skills? Can writers exploit our mental weaknesses for our own good? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Accept your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. We're coming to you via the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ray teaches philosophy, and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today, we're thinking about your brain on literature. This seems like a perfect subject for you, Ray. I mean, you're a published poet, and you teach classes on the mind. So this has got to be a pretty good day for you. Well, yeah, you might think that. But actually, I've got some reservations. I mean, what are brain scans supposed to teach us about literature? Well, I don't know. I, th I think there's a couple of really interesting studies. Like, okay, here's a study. It, it compares reading for pleasure with careful reading. And guess what? It turns out that tons of extra areas of the brain light up when you're reading carefully. Really? <laughs> and how big was the sample size on that study, Josh? Were the participants all recruited from the same university? Look, a lot of those brain studies aren't even good science. Well, maybe, but not everything in psychology is brain scans. I mean, there's lots of ways that science can help us understand literature. And none of them are any use. Literature is about feelings. That's the magic of it. We can study that magic. Uh, what are you talking about? Well, uh, okay, think about actual magic, stage magic, right? I mean, modern psychology has given us a real window into how that works. Right? It turns out that what those stage magicians are doing is exploiting weaknesses in our cognitive architecture, like the fact that we can't pay attention to everything at once. Yeah, what's that got to do with novels and poetry and stuff? Well, novelists are magicians too. Think of all those amazing surprises they pull off, like when they give us a clue but kind of trick us into paying attention to something else. Psychology helps us see how tricks like that are done. Yeah, that's good, I guess, but it doesn't tell us anything about what's really important. Look, literature is a subjective experience. There's something it feels like to read Emily Dickinson, and that's what really matters, and science will never tell us anything about it. I mean, I see what you mean, but I mean, don't you think psychology can tell us at least some important things about reading? One study, here's, a, here's another study for you. Um, reading fiction, it turns out, makes us better at getting inside another person's head. Yeah, great novels help us imagine what it's like to see the world from a totally different point of view. Isn't that a cool result? 
No, please, you didn't need 21st century science to figure that out. I mean, George Eliot said the point of her novels was that those who read them should be better able to imagine and to feel the pains and joys of those who differ from themselves. And that was 150 years ago. You're just taking an old idea and putting it in a new hat with a, a picture of a bar graph on it and a picture of a brain. Okay, I see your, your hat-based worry. But, but I don't think everything's like that. I mean, I think some psychology does more than just re-describe stuff we already know. Okay, here's yeah, another study for you. Turns out, if you want to get readers to care about a character from a different demographic group, the best thing to do, reveal their identity late in the story. Oh, wow. That's what Toni Morrison does, actually. Oh, I love Toni Morrison. Say more about that. She does this really cool thing in some of her fiction where she doesn't indicate right away the race of some of the characters. It's so interesting to know that that's likely to you know, make her white readers more empathetic, for instance. Right. So am I convincing you at least a little bit? Well, my jury's still out. I'm still not convinced that science can help us to understand literature. But I'll grant you that it can inspire literature. Look, there have been some really fantastic novels that explore different kinds of minds, like The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime about the autism spectrum, or like Motherless Brooklyn for Tourette's, or, or like Freshwater for Dissociative Identity Disorder. Ian McEwan's Saturday for Huntington's. Yeah, I love all of that stuff. I think I feel a poem coming on. There once was a man with a brain. <laughs> okay, that's great. I'm going to count on you, Ray, to finish that by the end of the show. I think it's going to be a really fun conversation. Our guest today is going to be neuroscientist David Eagleman, who just taught a whole class with me on literature and the brain. Meanwhile, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, to find out what researchers are learning about children's brains on literature. She files this report. I'm a real big, diehard, unapologetic sci-fi and fantasy nerd. Middle Earth and Lord of the Rings loom large in Dina Weisberg's early experiences with fiction. You're late. A wizard is never late, Frodo Baggins. Nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. As a kid, she was a bookworm fascinated by thinking about and writing stories. Harry Potter and Star Trek came later. First, and understand this, Harry, because it's very important. Not all wizards are good. Our orders are to intercept, investigate, and take whatever action is necessary. When she got to college, she wanted to know, how exactly do authors create amazingly detailed fictional worlds? How do these black squiggles on a white page suddenly make me think of Middle Earth or Narnia uh, or something like that. It seemed like magic. Now Weisberg studies the ways our minds create and think about things we know are not real. She's a professor of psychological and brain sciences at Villanova University. My work there is primarily with preschoolers, three, four or five year olds, looking at pretend games that they play. And she says kids are actually very savvy about the stories they're creating and consuming. They know what's real and what's not, unless adults they trust swoop in. Santa Claus is our fault. 
as adults. There is a billion dollar industry that is dedicated to getting kids to believe that this fantasy creature is real. And so of course they're going to believe that he's real because that's what all of the trusted adults in their lives are telling them. There are imaginary worlds, imaginary people, and also imaginary friends. An imaginary companion can take any form you want, any time you want. Tracy Gleason studies relationships real and imagined. She's a developmental psychologist at Wesley College. She also works with young kids, and over the years, she's met a range of imaginary companions. Despite the fact that they could change it at will, anytime, and do anything they want at any time, they tend to model them after real relationships in a, in a very, you know, sort of realistic way. Robots, trains, and blankets, a shadow, a tiny can of tomato paste, a herd of cows, all different colors. One kid said in preschool she was friends with an invisible little girl. But in fact, uh, it was a piece of pasta. She just hadn't really wanted to tell us that, so she made up a, a little girl instead of saying that it was actually a piece of pasta. I think rotini, something like that. Gleason agrees that children can almost always separate fantasy from reality. And she has a public service announcement. Imaginary friends are not a problem. In fact, they're a sign a child loves fun, fantasy, and relating to other beings. Sometimes in the middle of interviewing a child, you'll be asking questions about what the companion looks like and what they like to do and this sort of thing. And, and about halfway through the interview, the child will kind of look at me and say, you know, he's not real. Kids often say this in a whisper, as though they don't want their imaginary companions to hear. They're worried the adults are confused and don't understand the rules of fictional worlds. Relax and let the fantasy have a life of its own. What was that? My imaginary friend fell down. God, Daria, even your imaginary friends are embarrassing. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDeed. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.